Chapter Twenty Five of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Twenty Five. The row of carriages lined up against the curbstone indicated to the world at large that it was Friday afternoon, and Mrs. Chesley was, according to custom, at home. There had been many visitors, chiefly feminine, and much conversation of a spasmodic and desultory nature had been conducted over the teacups and beneath waving plumes. The senator was wont to say, with an apology for the pun, that the sounds which emanated from the crowded rooms during these receptions rendered the bird-house on K Street not unlike the bird-house at the zoo, a remark his sister received with the silent contempt it deserved. Isabel, presiding at the tea-table, distinctly sulked. The same people, she reflected morosely, had visited them almost every Friday that winter, and said the same things. Also, on the other five days of the week, she was apt to encounter them elsewhere and exchange similar remarks. And she actually remembered having enjoyed it, and entered keenly into the whirl of the engagements, which always presented themselves during the season, and which seemed so tiresome to-day. She wondered if she could be growing old, had she not that morning discovered one gray hair, a discovery bringing as much depression in its wake as though she had found it necessary to assume a wig? As a matter of fact, she had not yet quite recovered her poise since her outburst a few evenings previous, and was inclined to consider the world flat, stale, and unprofitable, and herself a much-injured damsel for having to reside therein. She therefore returned Monsieur Dupre's civilities so abstractedly though the little Frenchman mentally deplored the absence of a plume in the American girl, and sought relief elsewhere. Isabel enjoyed one portion of the afternoon only, and this was when Mr. Rivers hovered on the outskirts of the crowd, waiting an opportunity to approach. At this time she was apparently absorbed in her duties with the teacups, and handed Lindhurst the sugar with a glance and smile which caused that young attaché to believe himself supplied with nectar. The member of Congress shrugged his shoulders and walked away. He was quite conscious that the dimples brought to bear on Lyndhurst were displayed for his especial benefit, and determined to surprise her by making no further effort to secure a word for himself. And Miss Byrd was surprised and somewhat chagrined. She had expected a different result when she saw him enter, and had anticipated bestowing upon her recreant lover the slight nod and frosty smile which would convey to him the fact that he was still unforgiven. Rivers took his departure as soon as possible, blandly smiling without and hotly raging within. He had not enjoyed recently receiving a package containing the gifts he had bestowed upon his fiancée, nor had he relished the curt not-at-home, which had baffled his attempt to see her, and the return of his letter unopened. These were slights which the popular and rising young politician felt to be undeserved. He therefore determined that the next advance should come from Isabel, and he would graciously respond. He entertained no real doubt that sooner or later she would make this advance. Was he not the most desirable parti in Washington? Meanwhile, the girl deserved a lesson, and he resolved upon a wholesome course of indifference and neglect, which, experience had taught him, was often efficacious in such cases. So the desirable parti betook himself to the Metropolitan Club, and sat down, ostensibly, to read the evening paper, but in reality to reflect. He was about to make a move in the game of politics, 
which demanded delicacy of touch and careful manipulation, and which would, he believed, give him command of the situation. It therefore required thoughtful attention. There was another matter, however, of less importance, which interfered with its calm consideration by continually rising uppermost in his mind and in refusing to be ignored. By some unfortunate chance he had lost the ring Isabel had so contemptuously returned to him, and which he had carried afterwards in his waistcoat pocket. Of course, it could be duplicated, although the stone was of great value. It was not the necessity of buying another which disturbed the Honorable Charles Rivers, for he was generously disposed. It was the fact that the missing ring was marked with their joint initials, and a date. Also, he had good reason to believe it had dropped from his pocket during his New Year's visit to the Octagon House, and was apprehensive lest it be found there and advertised in the daily papers, with full accompanying description for Isabel or her father to read and recognize. It was all most annoying, but he believed the best solution was to immediately order a duplicate, which could be produced by him if necessary. Meanwhile, Lyndhurst had also brought his visit to a termination, and walked slowly to his rooms, absorbed in thought. He had in his pocket the report of the secret service man he had employed to trace Colonel St. John, and this report contained singularly disquieting information. He remembered it word for word. Colonel St. John, alias William Lewis, alias Joseph Sanders, present residence, Washington, present occupation, viz. As Colonel St. John conducts the gambling house at Jackson City, as Joseph Sanders, employed as watchman in the State Department, as William Lewis, janitor of the Octagon House, 18th Street and New York Avenue, sometimes visited at latter place by one gentleman after nightfall, once visited by a lady, followed on New Year's Day to the reception given by the Secretary of State, followed the same evening to the apartments of Count Alexis Valdmir, attaché, Russian legation. Thus read the report, and he repeated it as he walked along. Well, he had traced his man at last. He had but to say the word, and Colonel St. John's days of liberty were at an end. Still, he hesitated unaccountably. There had been unexpected developments, and certain complications had arisen unknown to the Secret Service, perhaps, but painfully obtrusive nevertheless. Again and again Lyndhurst put two and two together and compared the result. It was an unpleasant total. Taking it all in all, he told himself disgustedly that he'd be hanged if he understood it. How did Colonel St. John, notorious blackleg that he was, secure a position under the United States government? Why should he present himself as a guest at the home of the Secretary of State? And why should Mrs. Redmond appear disconcerted upon perceiving him? What connection had he with Count Waldmir? Colonel St. John, of Berlin, was well known to possess a daughter. Colonel St. John, of Washington, was apparently childless. Where was his daughter? At this point, Lyndhurst abruptly checked his train of thought, only to encounter fresh perplexities and a new series of questions admitting of no satisfactory reply. He recalled his first visit to the Octagon House and the bit of blue gauze he had found there, which now reposed in his card-case and seemed to him strangely like the gown Miss Bird had worn the evening he had discovered the wet spot on her skirt and had been informed of her engagement. Also the footprints in the snow in the old garden when he had reconnoitred on Christmas Day. What did it all mean? 
A sudden recollection of the Khedive's opals flashed before him, and he paused hopelessly. It's too deep for me, he ejaculated aloud, his hands thrust into his coat pocket and his hat pulled well down over his eyes. Should he have Colonel St. John arrested at once, or should he wait for an answer to the letter he had sent to Berlin? He thought the arrest should be made immediately, and the matter done with. Suddenly, out of the dark, two reproachful blue eyes assailed him, tearful, appealing, and withal a little frightened. Colonel St. John was reprieved for the time being. Again recalling the footprints, Lyndhurst instinctively turned down the alley leading to the old garden, and crossed the gap in the wall. The snow of Christmas had melted and been replaced by a slight covering to-day, so the garden glistened white and spotless as the Englishman crossed it and approached the house. He scarcely knew why he went, for it formed no part of his plan to encounter his foe single-handed. He knew too well the desperate fight of cornered beasts to attempt it. Far up in the top of the old house a ray of light shone out from a chink in the broken shutter. So the caretaker was at home. He paused, and looked at it long and earnestly. As he gazed, the indecision of the moment vanished, leaving in its place a grim determination and a burning thirst for revenge. Washington faded, and in its place arose Berlin and the costly establishment of the gambler. He saw his cousin's frank, boyish face, and the eagerness with which he had entered upon his first important work. He saw the same face, cold in death, with a nasty hole in the temple, and heard his sister's voice as she clung to him with trembling lips and tear-dimmed eyes. "'It can't be true, Cecil. It can't be true. Bertie could not have done it.' The blue eyes appeared again, but without avail, for Lyndhurst remembered the misery in the grey eyes at home, and swore softly as he recalled them. "'As ye sow, so shall ye reap,' he said aloud as the desire for justice overpowered him. He would quietly make sure Colonel St. John was at home. Then he would himself return with the police. The affair should be settled once for all. He would not hesitate, no matter who was involved. He repeated it quite fiercely to himself as he opened the insecure latch of the old back door and entered the hall, dark with the early dusk of the winter's day. No matter who is involved. The Englishman was troubled by no fears of the supernatural as he swiftly ascended the stairs towards that upper light. He was only conscious of the sportsman's desire for a look at his prey safe in its lair before taking the decisive step of its capture. So he walked as softly as possible and reached the landing unmolested. The janitor's door was slightly ajar. The lock had become difficult to manage since Mr. Rivers' visit. Colonel St. John had observed it apprehensively that very evening, and intended to provide himself with a bolt as soon as possible. Tonight, however, the door swung partly open, and Lyndhurst looked expectantly inside. But the room was empty, the dim light coming from an inner door. Colonel St. John was on duty tonight as watchman, and had left some time before, but Lyndhurst, ignorant of this fact, hesitated on the landing, undecided whether to retreat or advance, being alone and unarmed. As he paused uncertainly, a sound from the inner room arrested his attention. It was the restless movement of an uneasy body, and he involuntarily stepped inside the door as a voice, thick with fever, uttered a familiar name. "'Senator Byrd,' it said, as though reading aloud, "'announces the engagement of his daughter Isabel to the Honorable Charles Rivers,' 
member of Congress from Virginia. A moment's pause, and then the sentence was repeated with parrot-like accurateness. Lyndhurst hesitated no longer, but followed the example of Mr. Rivers and advanced to the inner room. The light that had attracted him emanated from the kerosene stove which stood upon the floor at some distance from the cot, and fell but dimly on the muttering figure. The Englishman, however, knelt beside it and scrutinized the flushed face gravely. "'Lee!' he exclaimed in astonishment. "'David Lee!' the private secretary. Lee raised himself upon his elbow and fixed his burning eyes upon his companion's face. I know where they went, he said in a hoarse whisper, the roostchook papers, but I'll never, never tell. By Jove, ejaculated the Englishman, in great perplexity, by Jove! Glancing helplessly about the little room, his eye was attracted by a brilliant ray of light from a crack in the board beside the cot, Instinctively he put out his hand. It proved to be a ring. Lyndhurst carried it to the oil-stove and examined it. In a moment Colonel St. John, David Lee, and the object of his visit were forgotten, for he recognized the slender rim of gold supporting one large diamond. Had he not regretfully watched it flash on a certain white hand only recently? It did not need the initials inside. I.H.B. from C.R and the date engraved, to tell him where it belonged. The lights from the diamond scorched the hand which held it, and the young attaché's face was very grave as he placed the ring in his card-case beside the bit of blue gauze, and turned again to the figure on the floor. How did he get there? What did it all mean? Lee was very ill, and quite delirious, that was evident. Lyndhurst was, of course, ignorant of his mysterious disappearance, as well as the loss of the roostchook papers, but as he looked at the young fellow, restless and suffering, his face hardened ominously. "'More foul play,' he said aloud. "'His daughter Isabel,' repeated Lee huskily. "'His daughter Isabel. Don't ask me about the roost-troop papers. I know. I know.' And Lyndhurst, with the sensation of an unwitting eavesdropper, hurriedly retreated. He felt confident there was black dealing somewhere— and at once started to inform the police. As he reached the street, he paused again. Justice, he said sternly, justice, whomever it may involve. And the rays from the diamond in his pocket burned through the card-case and into his heart. Well, it would all be over soon. Colonel St. John should be arrested to-night, Lee removed to a hospital, and his friends notified. By the way, who were his friends? The Englishman did not know. Whom, then, should he inform? An officer approached and looked curiously at him, but Lyndhurst hastened on as though he himself were within reach of the arm of the law, and breathed a sigh of relief as the man turned the corner without backward glance. Again he was in Berlin, paying such of Hertford's debts as money could obliterate, and packing his effects to ship home, along with his body. Lyndhurst shuddered. It had been a bitter period of his existence— he remembered the boys' rooms, the furniture, papers, pictures, the sketch, Star of the World. It hung beside the chimney, exactly within range of the eye from the easy chair before the fire. His sister's picture in its silver frame stood upon the dressing-table, but Evelyn's pretty face seemed strangely insipid when compared with the witchery of the head among the clouds. The easy chair was worn from much use. It stood uncompromisingly with its face to the chimney-piece and its back to the dressing-table. Lyndhurst, sitting down in it, 
raised his eyes to the watercolor sketch, looked a long time, and angrily, unwillingly, understood. With complete comprehension came the hot desire for revenge, and the resolution to spare neither pains nor money in bringing about just retribution. The chase had been long and wearisome. Colonel St. John and his daughter had apparently disappeared from the face of the earth, but now the end had come, suddenly, unexpectedly, with an overwhelming crash of events and a full realization of what might follow in its wake. Again he repeated the report of the Secret Service, followed to the apartments of Count Alexis Waldmere. Lyndhurst endeavored to classify his evidence and deduce the results calmly and dispassionately. Waldmere, sent on special duty, cold, relentless, and indefatigable, Russia's best resource in time of emergency, Waldmere in communication with Colonel St. John, Colonel St. John employed in the Department of State, David Lee, the secretary's secretary, delirious in the Octagon House, raving indiscriminately about Isabel Byrd and Rustchuk, on the floor beside him, a ring. The wheels of his thinking mechanism seemed to pause with a sudden snap, then slowly, painfully, revolve once more. Waldmere had assisted Colonel St. John to depart from the New Year's reception. Mrs. Redmond, the British attaché, felt suddenly giddy and removed his hat to allow the cold air to pass across his brow. He discovered he was in Farragut Park and sank abstractedly down upon one of the benches. Not far distant was the British embassy. Lyndhurst recognized his proximity and recognized also his official connection with it. It was no part of England's policy that Russia should hold a controlling card regarding the vexed question of the Rustchuk trouble. Lyndhurst had that morning been present at a long and anxious conference on the subject. Was it not his plain duty to go at once and lay his lately acquired knowledge and suspicions before his chief, to act upon as the latter thought best? First his duty to his country. The young Englishman had been well grounded in patriotism, and taught to look facts squarely in the face. It was now a matter too serious for the personal equation to be considered, and he must go, he realized, to the acting head of his government for such use as he might see fit. Whomever it may involve, he repeated gloomily, as he rose and walked toward the embassy. At the iron fence before the substantial red-brick house, he paused again and gazed fixedly at the lion and unicorn, surmounting the stone port cochere. But instead of the emblem of his nation, Lyndhurst saw a girl's head with its background of filmy clouds. The eyes sought his, changing as he looked from blue to purple, and in them shone the innocence of girlhood as well as the appeal of womanhood to man. Lyndhurst convulsively grasped the iron railing. Drunk, said a passing young woman disgustedly, drawing back her skirts. Again he raised his eyes to the stone-trimmed porte-cochere, the lion and unicorn now stood erect and rampant in their struggle for the crown, but the scion of their nation turned his back upon them and walked briskly toward Farragut Square and up the broad stone steps of a house nearby. Here he paused and, taking out his card, wrote a few words upon it, unconscious that a carriage had stopped before the door. "'Will you give this card to Mrs. Redmond?' he said to the servant who responded to his ring. The man stood back respectfully. "'Mrs. Redmond is just returning, sir,' he said. She came slowly up the stairs towards him, and paused a moment in surprised recognition. 
I am just back from a round of visits, with barely time to dress for dinner, she remarked lightly. The Englishman bent forward and said a few words in an undertone. Come in, said Mrs. Redmond hastily. Yes, certainly, Mr. Lyndhurst, I understand. James, I do not want to be disturbed. Lyndhurst followed her into the brightly lighted hall, and James closed the heavy door with unmistakable decision. End of chapter 25